Wow. Fantastic to be here. Thank you for all the medical people here that helped me yesterday when I whacked out my knee the other night, could hardly walk yesterday. And um, Katie Anderson, physical therapist, Natalie I spared, she's a physical therapist too. There are nurses that talk to me, that Chrissy, who's a nurse practitioner, talked to me. And anyway, I felt so loved and prayed over. And thank you. And my knee's much better today. And I can honestly stand up and walk. That's a happy thing, really, really happy thing. So I want to pray and uh, give this time to the Lord and um, ask him to speak to our hearts. So will you join me? Father, we come before your throne, the throne of the living God who is high and lifted up and yet wondrously, astonishingly is uh, right here among us and even in us. How can it be? Uh, we worship you. We worship you that we um, get to be together, laugh together, a merry heart doeth incredibly good like a medicine, as your word says. Thank you that we get to love on each other and get to know each other, and thank you that above all, we are loved by the living God. And so we worship you, Lord Christ, and we worship you, Father, we worship you, Spirit, we ask that you would be powerfully present with us and somehow in all that I trust I've heard you that you want me to share that each woman would hear a sentence, a thought, a scripture, something for herself. So open our hearts to receive, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, I wanted to start by, um, I've brought one of my favorite Bibles and I have to use a rubber band for it. So um, anyway, um, introducing you to my family. So I have a couple photos. Uh, we were all together this summer, first time in five years. Everybody was home at the same time, and uh, 14 of us spent uh, 10 days together, and some of them were up in central Oregon, and we all had our bikes, and uh, we were quite a biking train as we went where we wanted to go. Incredibly fun. I shared a bedroom with seven grandchildren. Uh, <laughs> So incredibly fun. Their parents are grateful because it made them go to sleep at an hour they might not have gone to sleep. Grandma's there, grandma's there. You know, take care of grandma. <laughs> uh, so, but uh, my grandchildren range from age 10 to 23. Um, so they, uh, they're a little bit older, but the, let's just say the 10 and 13 year olds were ready to keep it going all night long. But uh, grandma was there, so we didn't. Uh, the next picture shows we kind of took a little formal picture. And um, since I always put that picture over my mantle in my living room for the next number of years till we're all actually together again, grandma being a semi-controller, maybe more than that, um, bought everybody shirts. So we would... <laughs> Just bring your jeans, and after that, we're good. So here's your present for the summer. So anyway, so that's my family. Um, I have two sons and a daughter, and my uh, oldest son, Matt, and his family live in Salt Lake City, and uh, were transferred there about seven years ago. And Matt and Rachel um, have two sons and a daughter, Pavitra, who is Nepali, and they adopted her when they were missionaries in Nepal. She was an infant, um, almost dead when they got her. So there's a great story there that many of you have heard before. Um, she's now in college. It's just amazing. And so they have children, uh, 20, 17, and 13. Uh, and then my uh, second son, Jason, lives in England. Uh, when you teach your kids to fly, they actually fly away, and it's sort of sad. <laughs> but anyway, um, 
he went over to England to study uh, graduate school and fell in love and hasn't come home to live. So that was 22 years ago. So they've been married 21 years. He and Fiona, phenomenal woman. Uh, I'm just amazed by the, my in, in-law children. And they have a daughter, Maisie, 16, and a son, Seth, who's 13. And then my uh, beloved daughter, Shannon Campbell, who lives in Salem, and many of you know my Shannon. Um, and she has uh, Jackson, our beloved special needs little buddy, and he's 12, and twin, grand, uh, twin girls, 10, Kate and Claire. And then I have a grandson, <clears throat> vicariously, <clears throat> excuse me, in Nepal, um, because, here I have my water, <laughs> I'm good, I saw you all panic in the front row, <laughs> she needs water. <laughs> Anyway, um, I think I mentioned Friday night that we had the privilege of flying over to Nepal and uh, taking Pavitra home for the first time to see where she was born in a village way up high in the Himalayan mountains. And um, a, a year before that, her brother, who we thought had never survived childhood, my kids had tried to adopt him, the village wouldn't let a boy go, uh, contacted Pavitra uh, by Facebook. And we said, oh my word, he's alive. And uh, so we spent three weeks with him in Nepal. And he's uh, become a grandson as well, um, beloved to us. And we're doing our best to somehow get him to the States. It's messy immigration out there these days. So, But that's my family. And uh, so then I want to show you when we were up in Central Oregon, uh, because I like adventure and even still take some risks. That's a picture of uh, my granddaughter, Pavitra, and Petey, we call her, and we were just going to do some kayaking. And not only did we kayak, but the next day they said, let's go paddle boarding. And so I've never paddle boarded. <laughs> I did it! So I uh, had a blast paddle boarding. They were staying far away from me. Don't knock grandma over. <laughs> <laughs> help her stay balanced. <laughs> so it all went fabulously, and we were out on the lake paddleboarding for 45 minutes or so, and I get back to the dock, and the young woman that was working there says, just give me your paddle, and I'll pull you over to the dock. So I hand her my paddle, and then I fall off the back of the paddleboard. <laughs> oh, well, but I don't have any pictures of that, <laughs> thankfully. Um, but anyway... But it strikes me uh, as we look into the future and simply look at our lives that there's a lot of life that can feel insecure like a paddleboard, off balance like a paddleboard. There are changes not only in seasons, but within every season. There are challenges that come that, whoa, never expected that challenge. And so writing this message has caused me to go backwards quite a bit. Think through some of the early challenges in my life. I'm just going to read you a list just to show that there's a lot in life, yours and mine, that can throw us off balance. I think of how my family moved um, the summer before I started junior high school. And so I didn't know a single soul in the junior high when I started, and that's never an easy thing, except my twin sister, thank God. Um, but we were never in the same classes, so anyway. Um, and then I think of the next year after that, my mother, when I was 12 years old, had cancer, which thankfully she survived, but that was hard. I think of a car wreck when I was 16, and a drunk driver ran a red light and crashed uh, into our car, and um, I ended up with 75 stitches in my face. You can't imagine how gorgeous I could have been, you know? So, <laughs> sorry, sorry, not really. 
Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, dear. Um, but when you're, uh, um, when you're 16 years old, starting your senior year in high school, you're not too thrilled to have scars all the way down the side of your face. Uh, then the next year, heading off to college at age 17, and my twin sister and I uh, have always been enormously close. No surprise, I met some twins sitting back there on the right. Um, whoops, uh, Melissa, and it's not twin names. Sarah, Sarah. Um, and Anyway, your twins are very, very close. But we felt strongly that we needed to go to different colleges and establish our own lives instead of being the twins. Uh, so she headed west four hours. I headed east. This is from St. Louis, Missouri, five hours. And um, so we were nine hours apart by car in an era where you only, you know, connected by letter. And so that, that was not easy. Left me quite off balance for a while. Um, and then I met my, um, my dear husband, boyfriend, for, uh, anyway, in college. And we, uh, Paul and I were married immediately after college. And I was 21 years old, married. And um, marriage brings its own adjustments, doesn't it? First year of marriage is, I think most people would say, ah, I didn't know I would have to adjust to that and that and that and that. And that can leave you quite off balance as well. Um, I then became a school teacher that first year that we were married. And I went into the uh, principal and introduced myself. I'm Barbara Fletcher. I'm your new Spanish teacher. And I had had four years of high school, four years of college Spanish. And he says, no, actually, you're our new French teacher. I said... And I said, whoa, <laughs> I had had two years of college French, still spoke French with a trilled Spanish R, if you know what that is. <clears throat> There's nobody interpreting. Are we supposed to be interpreting? No, there are no deaf people. They all oh, they left. Okay, I won't take that personally. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's all good. Um, but anyway, I, it taught me a principle that has proven valuable for much of my life. Stay one week ahead. Stay one week ahead. Practice your French, pronounce those trills, but stay one week ahead of whomever you're teaching or whomever you're leaving and leading, and it, it certainly has proven a valuable thing. Um, I think about how uh, a year after that, I was unexpectedly pregnant, and um, my husband was in law school, and it wasn't a good time to be pregnant um, and have a baby, but we did, and um, not only did we have a baby, and I had never even babysat in my life. Frankly, I was 23 years old, uh, so I was not adept with babies, plus Matt was, uh, had colic, like, so every time I burped him, he projectile vomited across the room. <laughs> Oh, it was exciting. Um, <laughs> uh, and then a couple years after that, I had two miscarriages when we really did want to have another child. And then, um, by God's mercy, had Jason. Uh, so I always said, if I had had those babies, I wouldn't have gotten Jason. Uh, so, But I say all of that long list, and I could go on, on beyond that, that's for sure. Um, but... It, I've had 50 more years after all of that of challenges. And you've had how many years you've been alive of challenges and things that have brought, made you feel a bit off balance on your paddleboard of life. And how in the world do I handle it? The retreat team asked me to uh, talk on the subject of how to prepare for the different seasons of life. And as I prayed and prayed and prayed about that, um, there's one phrase that kept coming back to me, and it's the only way that I know how to prepare, ultimately, and that is to anchor your heart to God. 
I would like to tell you that there is, I, I could give you all manner of advice for every season of life, but for me, and you may think it sounds too simple, but for me, the only way to get through life is to anchor your heart to God, and then you're in a safe place, no matter what comes your way, because you're not in it alone. And there's an almighty God of the universe who is compassionate and kind, and he's there to walk alongside you and support you and strengthen you. Um, but my heart was not always anchored to God. Um, my life journey uh, did not begin in that way. I, my, uh, my anchor to God has been deeply set over the years, but I didn't come to him until I was uh, 30 years old. But I want to give you a verse. Uh, we're going to throw it up on the screen. Thanks, Melissa. Um, that is my theme verse for this message, and I thought it was very precious of God that uh, yesterday Jen used it in her message. I don't know if she knew this was mine. We have fled to him for refuge, can have great confidence as we hold on to the hope that lies before us. This hope in Jesus is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Uh, and so I'm going to just kind of walk through some of the seasons of my life, some of the bigger stories in my life, to show you how God was an anchor for my soul and how I believe with all my heart he will be the anchor for your soul in all of your seasons. And for some of you who may have heard a few of these stories in the past, I apologize. I hope God makes them fresh to you and somehow blesses you in the midst. But I set my anchor with God in 1974. I was 30 years old. I had been raised going to church every single Sunday of my life. Um, my mom and dad were very involved in our small church in inner city St. Louis, a small Methodist church. Um, I loved going to church. Even on vacation, we found churches and went to church. I went to church all the time. But um, I never knew that God loved me personally that God was invested in my life personally. I knew that uh, he had died for my sins, but, and I knew that he cared about world hair, uh, hunger and war and all that kind of stuff. But I had no concept that God cared about the details of my life. And as my 20s rolled on, and things, I thought, I have what I always thought I wanted, I have a loving husband, I have two beautiful little sons, um, I have a nice little home that um, we were renting at the time, but I'm not fulfilled. Not that I didn't love all of them, not that I didn't love being a mom, but there was a place in me that wasn't full. And I began to explore what, what is it? Um, and then my uh, twin sister had her second child, a little boy born with several significant birth defects um, and a hole in his heart and no right ear and a hemifacial paralysis. And that was hard. Um, and then when I was 28, my mother died very suddenly, which was devastating. And my husband was uh, an attorney in downtown St. Louis by then, but uh, not home very much working very, very hard with a, a workaholic pattern that would mark his life and had from law school on. And I just said, God, there's got to be more than this. And I went to a Christian bookstore, which there were hardly any in that era. Um, but I found one and came out with Corrie ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place. 
and read her phenomenal story about harboring Jews in um, Amsterdam in World War II, and then she and her family end up in concentration camps. And the book is astonishing at so many levels, but where God spoke to me was uh, Koi Ten Boom uh, smuggled her Bible into a concentration camp. And when I read that page, I thought, you know, I like my little Bible that I got when I was, uh, you know, confirmed in the church and has my little name on it with my maiden name on it, but I wouldn't risk my life to smuggle it in anywhere. I thought, well, that's, wow. Um, and then uh, you go on reading the book and you find that she leads a Bible study in the barracks there in the prison camp and lives are completely altered by that. And in the midst of their desperate place in a concentration camp, they find hope in Christ. And I'm going, Wow. I don't know that much about the Bible. Um, and then uh, one of the women in her Bible study and in her barracks was uh, pregnant, and the food, of course, in a concentration camp was incredibly paltry. And so um, they had this dispensary place. So she went and got some, a little bottle of vitamin pills uh, to take because of her pregnancy. And it's just a little bottle with a few pills in it. And miraculously it never ran out her whole pregnancy and I remember still remember when I read that like I had no idea God did miracles today and it, it opened a whole new world to me of who God is it's not that I didn't love God it's not that I didn't believe in Christ but I I was just like overwhelmed by the living God that intersected in this world in that way today and so one morning I got down on my knees at home. The boys were, Matt was in kindergarten, Jason was in a little preschool class. And I just got down on my knees at home and I said, Lord, I don't know what it means to give my uh, life to you as my Lord, but I want to do that. And it was a big deal for me because I've always kind of controlled my life. Um, my mom called me the chief. I ran every. It didn't matter if I was in the Girl Scouts or if I was in Tri High Y at the Y. I was always the president of everything. First girl president of the high school. I mean, it, it was craziness. And so if I was going to give up control of my life to God, um, it was a big deal for me to let go. And yet when I got up off of my knees that day, um, I had this... Um, starving hunger to know what was in this book because I knew that it would be in this book that I would know what I had committed myself to. What does it really mean to follow God, uh, to let him lead my life? How do, I, how do I make that happen? Can I make that happen? Um, and my anchor to God began to sink deeper. And then uh, in the fall of that year, 1974, my sister and I decided to try Bible study fellowship in a suburb of St. Louis, and um, which many of you probably heard of, a non-denominational in-depth Bible study ministry. And uh, I was hooked really quickly. And within uh, six weeks, they asked me, of course, to be a discussion leader. And <laughs> I said, if you only knew what I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but the principle, stay a week ahead, stay a week ahead, began to build into my life. And God used that next year to deepen my anchor in uh, significant and powerful ways. Uh, a year later, my husband came home from work, and Paul said, you know, honey, I, 
I really think we need to leave St. Louis and live somewhere else. And I said, seriously? Really? Um, where? And there began what I consider to be hypothetical conversations about where would we like to live. Um, New England, maybe? Uh, it's a little bit snowy in the winter. And on different parts of the country, would you like the South? And pretty soon, Paul came home from work one day, and he said... Um, Actually, I just learned about a job in Salem, Oregon, and I'm going to fly out and interview for it. And I said, holy cow, I've never even been to Oregon. Um, that's pretty far away from St. Louis. Um, but, but So Paul flew out and uh, came back and said, I don't want the job, but I do want Oregon. And I... Uh, if I had not been, frankly, in the Word of God... Knowing, learning what it is to have a marriage that would uh, be some, I believe, in partnership and marriage. But boy, I knew I needed to listen to Paul in that. And um, with um, trepidation in my soul, I went, we uh, flew out to Oregon. I left the boys home with uh, my husband's mom, with my mother-in-law. And um, we rented a car in Portland drove 2,400 miles around the state of Oregon. Gee, would you like to live here? Gee, what would it be like to live here? What are the schools like? And I had um, a little list with me of where there were Bible study fellowship classes in Oregon. Uh, there were some in Portland. There was one in Roseburg, southern Oregon, one in Medford. And so I was saying, you know, I'd really like to be close enough so I could commute to one of these classes or be live where they are. And in the end, uh, Salem was my first choice. It was Paul's second choice. He wanted Bend. And I said, well, it was like 30,000 people, and I'm a big city girl. And it was like, wow, that's pretty far from Portland, three hours. And we settled on Salem. And um, so we're flying home. And I, I am this young walking with God as my leader Christian, really. And <clears throat> I said to the Lord, uh, I... I really can't do this unless I know it's you and not us. And so, Lord, um, would you please sell our house without putting it on the market so that I would know that this is you? And I don't believe it's wrong to ask God for big stuff when you've got a big decision to make. And uh, in his great mercy, um, two weeks later, a woman called out of nowhere and said, is there any chance you would sell your house? Oof. <laughs> And um, that was a phone call I was thrilled to get and heartbroken to get all at the same time. Um, but we left uh, St. Louis in, the, in June of 1976 and uh, moved to Oregon. Uh, my anchor wasn't seasoned, nor was it uh, deeply set yet, but it held. And I was 32 years old. The boys were six and nine. And... With God's incredible answer to that outrageous prayer request, um, my anchor definitely sat deeper. And then God, in his kindness, gave me a scripture, uh, which he has often done over the years. A friend wrote it to me on a note, a friend in St. Louis. Um, and uh, it comes from Mark 10, uh, verse 29 and 30. Jesus replied, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news, will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution. It's, no, it's not a promise of <laughs> perfection, but uh, 
<laughs> I, uh, I took it and have experienced it as a promise that if I left my family behind, my heartbroken, widowed father behind, uh, my devastated twin sister behind, that God would give me sisters and brothers and mothers and fathers. And uh, he has done that. And many of you are those people. He has done it over and over and over and over again. And so the anchor held. And I want to share with you a little bit about my husband's spiritual journey because um, obviously it has influenced my life. Um, when we dated, Paul went to church with me each Sunday and all was great. And, um, but then when we, after we were married and he started law school, as I said, this pattern of workaholism began. And um, I ended up going to church alone because he was studying, 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 studying. Um, and that began what lasted for 11 years. I went to church alone. I <clears throat> took our little boys to church alone. I had them um, in the Methodist church baptized as babies alone um, because Paul said, I, I support you, but I don't believe. I'm an agnostic. I don't really believe all of that. Um, and the same way you do so, it would be disingenuous for me to stand up with you. I was the one that read them Bible stories alone at night. I was the one who um, helped grow them in the Lord or at least begin to anchor their little hearts and lives. But curiously, um, Paul always supported them going to Christian schools <laughs> and so forth. But we move across the country. We've landed in Salem, Oregon, June 76. And it's a Saturday afternoon, and Paul says to me, where are we going to church tomorrow? And I said, Really? We? And uh, he said, well, I know that this is agonizingly difficult for you to have moved here. And um, you moved here for me, and I want to do that for you. And a few months later, we found Salem Alliance Church, and the ministry of Don Bubna had an enormous impact on Paul's heart and life. Church then of about 500 to 700 people. We met, Cedar Hall was our sanctuary. Um, three months later, Paul gave his life to Christ. And um, you can imagine my utter joy over that. Uh, he couldn't stop reading his Bible. He read it constantly. He began commuting to Portland to a men's Bible study fellowship class. Um, and I was commuting to a women's BSF class in Portland that year as well. And... Uh, my soul became more and more and more anchored to the living God who is relentlessly faithful. Bible City Fellowship, um, big piece of my ministry journey, and I imagine it has been for a few of you and maybe many of you as well. I, uh, after arriving in Salem, felt pretty strongly that God was calling me to launch a class in Salem a terrifying thought, frankly, but I sensed strongly in my spirit that was God's leading. And so uh, in the first, we moved in June. By October, um, astonishingly, I had met 17 women in Salem in very different places, once at a gas station even, um, who had been in BSF in other states but now lived in Salem. So by fall of, of uh, that year, 1976, I had them in my home for coffee and just started a prayer group that God would give us the privilege to open a BSF class in Salem. 
um, literally uh, a year later, um, I got a letter, would you come to be trained to start the Salem class? Um, the boys were 7 and 10, and by then we had baby Shannon, who was 4 months old. I was 33 years old, and my f- feet began to get very cold. <laughs> oh boy, this is big. This is big. And God gave me um, Jeremiah 1.6, which maybe he's given to some of you over the time, over, um, over the years of your lives. But in Jeremiah 1.6, the Lord says, O sovereign Lord, or Jeremiah says, I can't speak for you. I'm too young. And the Lord replied, don't say I'm too young, for you must go wherever I send you and say whatever I tell you. And don't be afraid of the people, for I'll be with you and will protect you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Then the Lord reached out and touched my mouth and said, look, I have put my words in your mouth. And God, in his great kindness, in my tremendous insecurity, um, gave me that scripture to assure me not only of the calling, but the God who enables. And, you know, I, you know, if I'm supposed to speak about how to prepare for seasons, how could I have prepared for that? I don't know, honest, I don't, except to be anchored and committed to the living God. I'm not sure there's anything I could have done. Maybe I could have run off to do Bible school at that point, but the call was then. It wasn't future. Um, And the Lord had to remind me over and over again, Barbara, stay one week ahead of the class. Just stay one week ahead of the class. And uh, that is exactly what I did. And there was um, a pastor's wife. There were like literally 450 women in this class. And um, there was a pastor's wife from Woodburn area who attended a super, super conservative church. And um, I could tell you her name because I'll never forget her, but I'm not going to tell your name because it's really irrelevant, except that's how much it's stuck in my heart. She would always position herself right about where Julie is, right there, right there. And I would be giving the lecture, and she would do this. She would look up at me, go... And, oh my gosh, it was awful. And uh, I was like, what did I say? That was so wrong. Um, But anyway, it was much more about her than it was about me. But um, I can say that, uh, thanks, Julie, for not doing that. Appreciate it. (laughs) Um, God called me. I knew he had called me. And he sustained me. And... um, So many of you were in that class, and several of you were even leaders with me during that season. Six incredibly rich years of uh, not only raising children, but leading um, that class with all of those incredible women from 47 different churches around the city of Salem, and all one in Christ, Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, uh, has given me such a passion for the collective body of Christ Um, And so I would say, don't ever say there aren't Christians in that kind of a church, because there are. There are. Um, So those were six rich, rich years. And um, little Shannon grew up literally, (laughs) because she was a baby when I started, and I would always have Bibles spread all over the place. So she called every book a Bible for the first, I think, four years of her little life. But it's okay. Worse things could happen for her. So... (laughs) But after six years, um, my husband asked me to step out of the ministry. 
I was giving over 40 hours a week to a volunteer ministry, and it was very demanding, obviously, for our family. Um, And I was devastated. I didn't want to step out. And, I mean, what do you do, frankly, in an evangelical world where women don't have a lot of opportunities in churches if your passion is teaching and your gift is leading? Um, What do you do? And uh, so leaving BSF was a tough concept for me. And God, uh, in his mercy, once again used the scripture um, we were at, at a at church, and somebody was teaching out of the Gospel of John and teaching about um, Jesus uh, from John 5. And um, it says, Jesus prayed to his Father, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And when that, when that teacher said that verse, you know, it was one of those... Neon light kind of things. It was neon. I, I, I was, knew it was for me. Um, because if I look at that about Jesus, he'd completed his work. Jesus said, well, in my opinion, there weren't all that many believers yet. Jesus, you could do a little more, work longer, do more miracles, teach more. Um, and for me personally, you know, God, I don't even have somebody to take my place. Do I really have to leave? But God made it very clear with that scripture that my season was over, um, and uh, I submitted my resignation. Uh, there ensued, and I was 40 years old, a really hard season for me. Um, I began to do some secretarial work for my husband. I have enormous regard for people who do that because I was terrible at it. Um, I had to learn how to use a computer for the first time. It was 1984. Computers were a kind of a new deal. And I was so frustrated. And now I have Sarah outside my door. Sarah, my computer's not working. <laughs> I'm sure it's not my fault. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, but it was a hard season for me, um, and my husband was a perfectionist, so getting all those letters exactly the way he wanted them to be, um, it wasn't easy. I was frustrated. All three kids were in school, which another reason it made no sense. God, Shannon's now in school all day. Why am I leaving this ministry? Um, but God had wanted me to. And then someone called me and said, you know, this big uh, evangelistic campaign is coming to Salem. Could you please help us with it? And I thought, oh, man, that sounds, that sounds great. I would love to do that, as I'm thinking. And so I start praying about it. And uh, I'm reading in the book of Isaiah. And God says in Isaiah 31, 15, um, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you, Barbara, would have none of it. I wanted to roll from thing to thing to thing. And God said, no. I need you to stop. I need you to slow down. It's a season of quiet. Um, a year later began a different kind of ministry life. Um, And it was all volunteering at Salem Alliance with a lot of you women, frankly. And uh, we launched a women's ministry around 1985. We launched a Bible study. And literally a year later, 300 women hungry for God to know him better were in that Bible study. 
Hope Bulgin, uh, where Hope, I know you're here, there she is, started um, Hearts at Home with Kathy Bletcher was, I can't remember, she was in the first year, not, but anyway, um, Taffy Rab launched Retreat. We've done retreats since 1985, um, maybe 86, maybe it was that spring, winter, I think. Um, Ree Boothman, who was a part of our team, uh, launched uh, luncheons once a month for all the women of the church. We'd come together and have some Bible teaching and uh, we launched the first ever outreach ministry of the church that was all music uh, for Christmas time and invited all of our friends, women, to come uh, to a luncheon with music. And Laura Lee Friesen did, led the music. It was spectacular. Those were wonderful, wonderful, wonderful years. I was 41 to 46 years old. Um, simultaneously, I was attending seminary in Portland. Um, my husband, I had said to him, um, you know, honey, I, I would really love for somebody to teach me for a while. Um, maybe I'll go up to Multnomah and audit some classes. And he said, that's crazy. I think you should get a degree. And I said, really? <laughs> never, never contemplated it. Um, and uh, so began four years of commuting every day, almost every day of the week, up to Multnomah and studying the Word of God in Oh, it was such a blessing. I loved, I absolutely loved it. I hated all the deadlines, but I loved, I loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, and uh, I finished, I graduated in 1990 spring um, with a couple of graduate degrees in Bible. And uh, I had no idea why I had done it. God hadn't opened the door for any ministries. Um, I, I could still keep leading some of the lay ministries, of course, which I was. Um, I could still sing in the choir, which I did. I loved that. But um, somehow I wanted more. And uh, Jane Wolfe, as most of you know, who led our Life Path ministry for many, many years, and I um, met, or not met, we had met before, but we were speaking at a conference in Salem. And um, at that conference, we kind of pulled off into the room where the speakers got to be to get some coffee and water and regroup. And uh, I was chatting with Jane, and, and I said, Jane, you know, if you could do your dream job at Salem Alliance, what would it be? Um, and, or would you like to just talk about that? So she said, I would love to talk about that. Because she said, isn't this weird that we both love Salem Alliance, and we're over here at this other church doing this great conference? Um, so she, I invited her over for lunch, and we um, talked for several hours. What's your dream? What's your dream? What's your ministry dream? And um, being the note taker I am, I wrote it all down. And after Jane left, I typed it all up on the computer that I now knew how to use, uh, printed it out on the old dot matrix printer, and uh, threw it in a file, threw it in a drawer. I had no idea if anything would ever come of it. Um, but a year later, fall of 1990, Morris Dirks called Jane and me, and he said, he was our lead pastor, a phenomenal guy. Couldn't even begin to tell you how much I love and respect Morris. Um, but he called us and he said, could you two come talk to me? I want to talk to you about women's ministries. So, sure, be glad to. So I took my little dot matrix list with me. Did, little did he know. <laughs> we had thought about this. <laughs> and uh, tucked it in my purse. And, and we're just meeting with Morris. And he said, would you two women um, co-lead a women's ministries? And um, you would do it as volunteers because we can't really afford to pay you. But we could give you an office to share. And... Um, 
I, we said, you know, actually, we have a bit of a different dream of what God might want us to do at Salem Alliance. And I pull out my dot matrix <laughs> list. And uh, Jane really wants to launch a support and recovery ministry. And I really want to take women's ministries to a whole uh, different level, if, if God would allow. And we shared a little bit of our heart and gave him that. And he literally ran out of the office. He was completely, holy cow, these women. <laughs> so anyway, um, he came back in and he said, uh, let me think about it. Let me pray about it. Um, he brought in the executive pastor to talk with us and see what our dreams were. That was Ron Smith in that era. And um, we went on home. And I thought, well, Lord, probably nothing will ever come of that, you know. But about a, several weeks later, uh, we were called back. And um, Morris offered us each a job um, working half-time um, but not with pay, so it wasn't actually a job, a volunteer position. <laughs> um, and Jane could launch the support and recovery, and I could launch the women's ministries the way I longed to do it. And um, Jane and I both said to Morris, um, you know, Morris, um, Jane has 16, 18 years of ministry experience. She has an active counseling practice. She's a trained counselor. Um, I have over 16 years of ministry experience combined, a couple graduate degrees in Bible, um, and I don't think you would ever ask men to do this. And um, um, it sounds courageous, but it was terrifying. Because I drove home crying the whole way, thinking I had walked away from my dream, my ministry dream. But the anchor held. We who have fled to him for refuge can have confidence as we hold on to the hope that lies before us. This hope, Jesus, is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. And I sense the comfort of Christ in the midst of it all and... Then, um, a week later, he called us back in and he said, we found a little money in the budget and we each started in basement offices at $400 a month. <laughs> but another piece of, it wasn't much money, obviously, um, but it was a principle. And obviously, over time, we reached parity with other staff. But it was a principle of valuing um, what Jean was going to do and what I felt God had called me to do and um, giving us the respect as staff members that we felt was important to the roles that we were calling, uh, being called to lead. Um, I also had asked Morris, you know, Morris, I know women's ministry leaders all over are called directors, um, but could you please call me a pastor? I have no desire to direct people but I have a passion to shepherd people and shepherd their souls. And uh, Morris, being the phenomenal guy he is, literally changed um, Harriet Dixon's title to be pastor of grade school ministries, Nancy Schofield, pastor of preschool ministries, Barbara, pastor of pa women's ministries, and Jane, pastor of uh, support and recovery ministries. And because uh, he believed, I can't even tell you what Morris did for us as women frankly, um, in the life of Salem Alliance um, and for us, for me personally, for Jane.
Um, let me move on to uh, that, the next kind of big unexpected call um, and a situation for which, again, I'm telling you, I couldn't have been properly prepared except for Christ. Um, and it was when I was asked to preach for the first time. Um, I'd been on staff a year, and Morris was doing a series on Galatians, and he said to me, you know, Barbara, um, you wrote your master's thesis on Galatians 5, so it seems like you should preach on Galatians 5 instead of me. And uh, that actually might be a reason I shouldn't have preached on it, but uh, knew too much, way too much information. But um, I, he said, I have permission from the elders to have you preach. Um, let me back this up to 1983. Um, it was a, I was still teaching BSF, and Don Bubna, our lead pastor, the, who I uh, so much respect and love for that man, now dancing in heaven. Um, but he had asked me in 1983 on a Good Friday service, Barbara, would you speak at our Good Friday service? And I literally can still tell you what my response to him was. Are women supposed to do that? Are women supposed to teach men like that? Um, and uh, he had me do it. He said, I've asked you to do it as lead pastor, so forth. Um, and I did do it. But what that did for me was force me to study the issue for myself biblically. And so when I started seminary, those four years of all that graduate stuff, I, the very first paper I ever wrote was, what does the Bible say about women in ministry? Because for me, I had to settle the issue for myself. And I would say, you need to settle the issue for yourself, um, yourselves. Because uh, thank God, he had prepared me by doing that. Um, because I didn't know I would ever be asked to preach at Salem Alliance Church, for goodness sakes. So I did preach. Um, and that launched quite a controversy and unwittingly for me, a very difficult and painful journey. And much more so for Morris, who is a strong advocate for women in ministry. I was 48 years old, and um, the controversy led the elder board to decide to do a research paper, if you will, on what is the role of women biblically. What do we believe biblically? We're, we need to establish that as a church. So they commissioned three people to do this study. Morris Dirks, myself, and Wayne Carr, a phenomenal saint now in heaven, also theologian, uh, a phenomenal theologian. And Wayne Morris and I literally met every week for a solid year on Wednesday afternoons, and we'd come in with all of our books we'd read, our articles we'd read, and we would call through it and say, so what of this do we believe God is God's way for Salem Alliance Church on this subject? And we ended up with a position paper that um, had to be presented to the Board of Elders. And uh, I was invited to go to those elders' meetings, which, of course, was all men. And so I went to the elders' meetings and um, went home crying every time. Because what had been a church that has always had um, not just unity, but loving unity, and disagree sometimes, but disagree in love. And I sat through three elders' meetings where people were raising their voices 
tradition had established itself in their lives and in their convictions about Salem Alliance. A few spoke up in favor. Some of my best friends, husbands, I mean, my husbands and my best friends were on the elder board, some of them raising voices against uh, women preaching and women having those kinds of leadership roles. And I, I would drive home saying, God, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it to divide this church that you, it's your bride. I love it. It's not worth it. And I said, the more as I went into his office, it's not worth it. More, let's, let's not do it. And um, he said, we're doing it. God's called us to do it. And after uh, those very painful meetings, the elder board came together and said, uh, for the first time, women may preach, women may serve communion, and women may baptize. And um, I still, yeah, okay. I praise God for the courage of those men to go against the tide in an evangelical world, very much against the tide. And um, for me, it was a challenging season. It wasn't just men that opposed. There were lots of women that were very opposed to it. And that was uniquely painful for me. Um, One especially was on staff. That was even more painful. But God moved moved me through it by his mercy and his grace. And I'm just saying again, how could I have prepared for that? I don't know, except that God held on to me. And my husband supported me every single inch of the way. And every time I preached, he was there for every service to listen to every sermon and um, encourage me, believe in me. Um, And the anchor held. For those of us who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence in this as we hold on to the hope that lies before us. This hope, Jesus Christ, is a strong and secure and trustworthy and solid anchor for our souls. And he was for me in that season. Now as I look back 23 years later, it's hardly ever an issue. (laughs) It's settled is settled at Salem Alliance, and I can't even begin to tell you how I celebrate Jen's preaching and Susan's preaching, and um, it's just, I, I just think our church is blessed by different perspectives. It's not that I'm a crusader, I'm not a feminist, I, I never have been, but where people are called and gifted, um, it's a whole different ballgame to me. And so I, I say hallelujah, now we have children's pastors, we have um, middle school pastors, women, we have high school women pastors, and on and on it goes throughout the life of Salem Alliance. God has loosed his women to serve and help build the body of Christ at our home church. Um, over the years, um, my roles at Salem Lions changed dramatically. I'm not going to spend time going into all of that. Um, but I, I will just say this, that every role I was asked to take, uh, have been asked to take, was bigger than I am and harder than I thought it would be. And uh, the principle continued to held, hold that um, stay a week ahead um, and trust Christ trust Christ. Didn't matter if it was women's ministries or discovery ministries or launching Saturday night services where I led the team without dividing the church. That was the ultimate goal in that. Um, Whether it's to launch a clinic, what do I know about clinics? Um, And the incredible privilege of doing that and now getting to teach RTI. Um, I don't know how to prepare for all of that in any way except to anchor my heart to Christ and trust in the power of Christ, strength of Christ. Um, and I certainly don't know any way to prepare for widowhood except that. Um, 
Over the years, as I referenced on Friday evening, um, my uh, kind husband's introversion led him to greater and greater isolation. Um, and also led him away from attending church. Hardly ever attended church probably the last 13 years of his life. Um, so I, who had taken the children alone, the first 11 was back going alone um, in those last years. And as a, um, as a wife, that was painful. As a pastor, it was really painful. Um, but it, it's not because he lost his faith. It's because of uh, the introversion that was driving his life and the isolation that was driving his life. But in uh, 2001, right after 9-11, four weeks after 9-11, um, Paul left town on a business trip up to Washington uh, just for three days, was due home on a Friday, and uh, he didn't come. And I was like, where is he? Why isn't he home? And I had called the hotel where he was staying, and no, he had checked out, and he's not there anymore. Um, Called my kids, don't know where dad is, can't get a hold of him. We didn't all have cell phones at that time. Um, and called the police, had the police out all night looking for him. My next door neighbor and my beloved son-in-law, Drew Campbell, um, drove together up I-5, got off at every single exit looking for Paul's car. Has he been hurt? Is he injured? Where is he? Why hasn't he come home? Um, very long night meeting with police through the night, and um, only the next morning to found out, find out that Paul had um, committed suicide at a hotel up in uh, Washington. No note, no explanation. Shattering, as you would imagine. Um, huge mystery. I mean, I knew he had been depressed, and I had begged him to get help for his depression, unsuccessful in getting any help for him. Can't make somebody do things sometimes. Um, four days after um, Paul's death, when I could literally hardly breathe, I was hyperventilating constantly, um, I uh, called the investment company to check the balances in our a retirement account and in um, an inheritance I had received from my parents um, and had been able to multiply in the stock market. And it was all about re for retirement and stuff. And I called them to say, could you just tell me what are the balances? And they said, zero. And uh, that's when I began to know uh, why he took his life. And it took me weeks, even months, to unravel the mystery but a very, very good man lost his way by becoming a day trader in the stock market. Uh, took all of our money and invested it and lost it. Borrowed money, invested it and lost it. Borrowed money, more money, invested it and lost it. And uh, I went through two years of uh, creditors calling the house all the time. And I, who had never not paid a bill in my entire life, was being harassed by creditors uh, constantly uh, for all these credit cards that Paul had taken out. Um, and there was a sense of profound shame. You can imagine. Uh, I think there would be for most wives. How could you not figure this out? But if you're a pastor... So like, how in the world could you not figure this out? Um, that uh, this man was really desperate. 
So there was tremendous shame. There were huge debts to pay off. Um, I couldn't even think of going to a movie or anything like that for a couple years. There was no way. Uh, there were still some college bills of the kids left to finish paying off. I lost 20 pounds in three months. I couldn't sleep for more than four hours a night. I certainly couldn't eat. Um, I was terrified. I was brokenhearted. Um, and I clung to God because there was nowhere else to go. Obviously, I had my beloved children and a few little grandchildren. But in the end, they went home, and I was in my house alone, trying to sort out all of this chaos and devastation. And I want to share with you, um, the morning after Paul's death, um, I got up, not that I had slept, because I hadn't, but I just remember sitting down on the floor of my bedroom, uh, leaning against the dresser, and because um, there were already people in the house, and I just needed some time with God alone. And I was reading through the Psalms. We were preparing to write curriculum um, for the Psalms at that point, and I've always been in charge of writing the curriculum. So anyway, so I was reading through the Psalms, preparing for that, and that morning I just kept went on to the next Psalm that I was gradually reading through. And I come to Psalm 146, and I always insert my name in the Psalms, and I hope you do that because it's a great way to pray to God. Um, so this is what it says, Psalm 146.5. Blessed is Barbara, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord her God, the maker of heaven and earth the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever in the face of a husband who hadn't at that point. Okay? He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless. My children suddenly were fatherless and the widow. And I read that that morning because I happened to be up to that psalm. And it was God's way of shouting to me, you are not in this alone. I am with you, and I'm going to see you through it. And there were many, 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 many mornings where I, because all I could read for almost two years were the psalms, the prayers of agony of the soul. And I would pray them out to the Lord, how long, how long must I carry this sour in my heart? Will I ever laugh again? the way it felt. Will I ever be able to laugh again? And will I ever be able to forgive him? We all know what the scriptures tell us about forgiveness. 70 times 7 doesn't say if it's this sin, don't forgive. Or it's that sin, don't forgive. It says just forgive. God says just forgive. Um, and for uh, the first year and a half, I refused to even entertain it. I had a spiritual mentor, uh, Dr. Pamela Reeve, also now in heaven, um, was uh, dean of women and professor at Multnomah. And she would call me and she would say, um, Barbara, you, you really need to forgive him. I can't, Pam. I can't. I won't, actually. I won't. He doesn't deserve it. This is the way my brain was going. He's left me in this outrageous situation with this heartache, this devastation, financial chaos, kids brokenhearted. Uh, no, I'm not going to forgive him. 
Um, and I literally would get angry at her for expecting that of me. Because some things in life, I mean, I listen to people on TV who someone's killed a child, and they say, I forgive them. And I'm thinking, oh, my word, you have no idea. I mean, that's great that you're saying that, but please take the journey. <laughs> because have the integrity to take the journey that, um, as well to true and deep forgiveness. Um, and one day, finally, after a year and a half, Pam uh, begged me to come up to Portland and spend three hours with her one afternoon. You have to forgive him. You have to forgive him. You have to forgive him. I remember sobbing and saying, it's not fair. He's in heaven dancing, and I'm not. I'm here with this. Um, but by the time I left her home, I had prayed that God would give me a heart to forgive. And because uh, she was, of course, absolutely right. And I can tell you that within a month, as I kept praying, God, give me a heart to forgive. God gave me a heart of compassion for a man who had so desperately lost his way and gave me the ability to forgive. And here, of course, is the truth and the irony is then I was free. I was free. And it's not that it never crept up again of like something else hard that I'd have to solve a problem or fix a financial mess. It would come back, but it would go away again. God would give me the grace of forgiveness over and over and over again. And so it was that God has been my constant companion, um, the anchor for my soul. And he has given such incredible redemption it's unbelievable the redemption he has given um, to help me recover financially, <clears throat> to give me a thought that someday I might retire, except I don't really want to, so that's another whole issue. <laughs> um, but he has relentlessly shown me his love and care. And I have no message for you women except that, that there is a God who adores you, who knows your life, who knows your season, who knows the challenges of that season, who celebrates the joys of that season, and who wants to walk with you through every single season of your life. And yes, life isn't perfect, and my heart grieves over a little grandson with special needs who may never live alone his whole life. Grieves for my daughter and son-in-law and the painful journey they walk every single day with joy and kindness, and this is how we're going to help him through this and that and the other thing. Life isn't perfect. It's never perfect. But God is. And if you just look at that picture of my family and uh, the staggering gift of three kids who walk through their own journeys of everything from rage to brokenheartedness back to rage, all three stayed steady with Christ. All three have godly homes. All three raising children to walk and love Christ. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. So I say to you, there is one anchor for your soul. And it's the living God. May he hold you in every season of your life. Shall we pray? Father, how I thank you for your relentless faithfulness. How I thank you that you are the living God who understands anger and rage and understands broken hearts and understands shattered dreams and broken uh, plans for life that one may have had. You're the God that understands the winters of our lives and the God that brings summers and springs to our lives as well. And so my heart's cry for these 
beloved women is that they would every single day seek to anchor their souls back to you, back to you, back to you, because you are ultimately the only solid ground on which we can stand. And we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.